bounding off our series on worship. And, you know, worship is such a big part of who we are that I don't think um, one series covers all of the aspects that, make, that makes up worship. <clears throat> but if I just remind us again of what we have dealt with over the last few weeks, so we've looked at why worship is important, we looked at the presence of worship, we looked at the power of worship, we looked at worshiping in spirit and truth. Last week, Malcolm helped us um, get a deeper understanding of worship and work. And today, we're going to be looking at worship and justice. And next week, we'll try and do something a little bit more practical. Josh is going to lead us next week, something for us to look forward to. But you know, this message, this part of worship to me um, is actually one of the most challenging one of all that we've looked at. You know, It is one that deeply concerns me, and I trust that as we, as we look at what we're going to look at, that Jesus himself will awaken something in you as well. So what we're going to do in the next few minutes is we'll, we're looking at, we'll look at an Old Testament scripture from the book of Isaiah, and then what we'll do is we'll see how Jesus interprets that 740 years later and how Jesus teaches about it and he presents it to his followers. That's us. Um, and so we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 58, and I must warn you that if you read this text with ears that are willing to hear and eyes that are willing to see, then this scripture will kind of disturb you. I think um, it will challenge you and it'll probably make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Now, in this text that we're going to read, God speaks to the people of ancient Israel through the prophet Isaiah, and we will unpack um, some of it so that we can hear what God is saying to us even today about our worship. And what we are going to read, as I mentioned earlier, was written about 740 years before Jesus. So that makes these words, this text, about 2,760 years old. So let's read Isaiah chapter 58. It is up there. Thank you, Noah. And we'll read the first 10 verses of Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. This is God speaking. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high, 
Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? You can go to the next slide. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear God. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. We'll stop reading from, the, from Isaiah 58. Now the prophet Isaiah was one of the most prominent prophets of the Old Testament. And he actually made a number of prophecies that actually came to pass. In fact, he prophesied about the birth of Jesus hundreds of years before it happened. Isaiah, we believe, was someone who may have been quite well off. We, we understand that Isaiah's father was the brother to the king. So Isaiah would have moved in the higher echelons of society, and he would have had the opportunity to speak to the decision makers, to the people who had power and had sway in those, in those echelons of society. Isaiah's ministry revolved around reminding the people of their need to keep God's covenant if the Israelites were going to remain God's chosen people. But as we read through the book of Isaiah, we see that a lot of his ministry fell on deaf ears. Now, what the prophet Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 58 is ritual versus responsibility, or what we could also call perhaps worship versus justice. Now, the precise historical context is not entirely clear, although we do have some ideas, but that actually makes this passage quite powerful as it is then able to transcend, to move beyond its original setting here into which Isaiah was speaking. And so this text has the power to speak to many generations of God's people. And I think Jesus confirms this for us. So right at the beginning of the chapter, God's people are described as being very devout. They seek him daily, it says in verse 2. They go to temple to worship. They offer sacrifices. 
they pay their tithes, and they ask God for righteous judgments. They talk about gathering around the Holy Scriptures. They talk about praying. It even says that they delight to draw near to God. So these are like, these, these people that are being described here, they are like the most religious people that you could imagine. These people, it appears, had worship totally sorted. They had it down. Their worship seemed to be on point. And anyone who looked in from the outside would say, wow, see how these people love God. See how they love to worship him. See how they fast, how they pray, how they come together. But then when we look at verse 3, it seems like something is going wrong here. It seems like these people become frustrated with God. And they say to God, like, God, you're not answering our prayers. Verse 3 says, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? These people are saying to God. They're saying, God, we've been worshiping. We've been very devout. We've been fasting and praying. Um, and we've been fasting a whole ton. I don't know how you measure fasting in, <laughs> in kilograms or in tonnage. But we've been fasting a whole ton. They've had like a, a month's worth of fasting and praying, let alone a week. And they come before God and they say, God, why does it seem like you are withholding your blessing from us? They say, why did we bother fasting and humbling ourselves? Why did we even bother doing that so diligently? And so it's clear that the people of God had this idea in their minds, they picked this picture in their minds, that if God is happy with their worship, that he would bless them. But if he wasn't happy, he would withhold his blessing. It seems to be that this is the picture or the understanding that these people had in their minds. So what we could think is going on here is that God is criticizing the hollowness of their worship. We may think that their worship has become only a lot of rituals, that they were just going through the motions of worship, but they weren't being sincere that their relationship with God has just simply become religious, but not sincere, not authentic, not genuine. We could think that when we assess what is being said here. We could be reminded of that familiar saying that we have, that God is looking for relationship, not religion. You remember that one? That God is looking for internal devotion or passion or something like that. But I don't think that that is what God is saying here. What he is saying is that their worship has become in some way misguided, misdirected, and that they have come to a point where they totally miss the point of what worshiping this God of the Bible is all about. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, points out a glaring inconsistency between their devotion to religious 
rituals to religious worship, and their daily thinking and living in work, and in public, and in their communities, and they're allowing all kinds of injustice and poverty and oppression to fester within their communities. And God says here, I think, that there are people around them who are suffering, yet they were not showing mercy or justice. They've lost focus of what the full and complete picture of worshiping God and what actually is important to him. And God then describes the kind of worship that he does desire in verses 6 and 7. He says, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. In verse 7 he says, to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. He says there, you think you're worshipping me by doing the religious rituals, the fasting, the praying, the singing, the going to temple. You think you're worshipping me through that, but by neglecting these basic issues of poverty and injustice, you actually are showing that you don't really know me. You think you know me, but your actions are showing that you don't. Now let's fast forward from Isaiah's time into Jesus' time. And let's see how Jesus, I think, understands and interprets these words of Isaiah. And we'll go to Matthew chapter 25. Now you can put that slide up. And we'll read from verses 31 to 46. And in this portion of scripture here, Jesus tells a parable of what the final reckoning will be like at judgment. And this is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? 
The king will reply in verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Very interesting, sounds like a complex picture that's being painted here by Matthew. So this parable describes the king, and this king is separating people, and he's calling his followers to come and to inherit the kingdom because they were blessed by the Father And because they did certain things, as Jesus is describing here, he says they welcomed a stranger, they clothed the naked, they visited the sick, they fed the hungry. And so we see in this list of things here that Jesus mentions a lot of similarities to what Isaiah mentions in chapter 58. The hungry, the naked, the stranger, and it actually seems like Jesus is borrowing language straight from Isaiah and using it here. But when Jesus describes himself in verse 35 here as being the one who was a stranger, who was naked, who was hungry, who was thirsty, they respond, no, But when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you in need? You are the king. You didn't need any of that kind of help. But I think what Jesus is describing here is a relationship with God that goes much deeper than people understand on face value. God speaking through Isaiah and Jesus has this idea that a true relationship with God has as one of its truest indicators, as one of its truest pieces of evidence in how we treat issues of poverty and oppression in our community. And so I ask myself, how am I responding to people who are poor. How are you responding to people who are hungry, who are naked? How are we responding to people who face injustice? And Jesus is saying here, I believe, that it is one of the truest indicators of whether or not you actually 
know and worship the God of the Bible. And so to Jesus, when we read this, clearly this is not a marginal issue. This is not something that you put on the side and think to yourself, I'll get to that maybe if I come around to it. Jesus doesn't view it in that way. Jesus rather views it as something that is at the forefront of worship. Now, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 58 and we look at verse 6, we see there God describing the kind of worship that he wants. The truest sign of a relationship with him. He says they're loosing the chains of injustice as we did earlier. Setting the oppressed free. Feeding the hungry in verse 7. Providing the poor wanderer with shelter. And then here in Matthew, Jesus identifies himself closely with the people who are being described there. And so it seems like this is not coming from someone who is completely and entirely oblivious to what it's like to be, to be in need, to be poor. Now, I don't know how often you think about it, but for us, we as Christians, we follow a Middle Eastern man who did not speak English. We follow a Middle Eastern man who was a traveling teacher who often slept outside. Jesus was, off, was someone who often relied on others for food and for shelter. In the last week of his life, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last supper in a borrowed room, and the next day his friends betrayed him. He was executed as a criminal out in public. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus knew what it meant to not have. Yet he willingly incarnated himself amongst struggling, oppressed people who were not only spiritually oppressed but oppressed in terms of how society and community treat people. And so when he calls us to worship, when he calls us to worship him as the God of the universe, a big part of our worship entails how we treat those around us, the poor, the hungry, the unclothed, the stranger, the sick. Now, there's a lot more that these two passages present us with, and we've only touched, I think, on the main theme of these texts. But I think we're going to stop there now, because there's a lot to chew on in these texts. I think I also need to say that Poverty and injustice are very complex problems. And in our South African context, they are even more complex because they involve issues of race. And so these complex issues and problems will require complex solutions. 
And the approach for you may very well be very different to the approach for me. Um, and I don't believe that Jesus wants all of us to become like Mother Teresa. But what he does require is for us to engage, to hear what he is saying, to see what he has done, and to model that. And so as I conclude, I think what we just thought about is encompassed in this great commandment, which to me explains worship. And it's found in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 14, where Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we serve a just God. We thank you that when that day comes, the day of the Lord, and we stand before you, we can be clothed in righteousness because you sent Jesus. And because you sent Jesus, we have become the righteousness of God through him. But Father, as we think about issues of injustice, especially in our context as South Africans, Lord, I ask that you would come and continue to work in our hearts, in our minds. Continue to reveal more of yourself to us. Continue to speak to us as we worship. Show us the way. Show us the truth. Show us your life. Because we eagerly desire to have your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.